This audio recording is presented by New City in downtown Orlando. Please remain standing for the scripture reading this morning, which is from Romans chapter 15, verses 14 through 21. See Apostle Paul. I myself am satisfied about you, my brothers, that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge and able to instruct one another. But on some points, I have written to you very boldly by way of reminder, because of the grace given to me by God, to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles in the priestly service of the gospel of God, so that the offering of the Gentiles may be acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. In Christ Jesus, then, I have reason to be proud of my work for God, for I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me to bring the Gentiles to obedience by word and deed, by the power of signs and wonders, by the power of the Spirit of God, so that from Jerusalem and all the way around to Illyricum, I have fulfilled the ministry of the gospel of Christ. And thus I make it my ambition to preach the gospel, not where Christ has already been named, lest I build on someone else's foundation. But as it is written, those who have never been told of him will see And those who have never heard will understand. This is God's word. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Thank you, Damien, for that introduction. As Damien said, uh, my name is Tezar Putra. I'm married to Tatiana Putra, and I'm from Indonesia. And if you don't know where Indonesia is, that is completely fine. Um, Believe it or not, a friend of mine in Memphis asked me how long of a drive it was from Indonesia to Memphis. So not many people know where it is, and that's not many of us here, so that, that's okay. Um, but we are planning to go back to Indonesia, and we're so very thankful um, to New City for having invested in us and, and um, prepared us, really, in many ways to go and do what we feel like God is calling us to do. So thank you for that. These past few weeks, as many of you know, we've been talking um, uh, about a, a new series called The Pattern Prayer um, that's been based on Matthew 6, where we look at the Lord's Prayer And this sermon is going to be connected to that series, but it's not a part of that series. Damien last week asked us a very important question. He asked us, what is Jesus's vision and mission? What is the point to any of this? What is the point to our lives? What is the point to this broken world? And the answer is found in the whole Bible, but it's also summarized in Matthew 6 in the Lord's Prayer. And this is the answer. Jesus' vision, the point to all this, is to glorify God by making his invisible kingdom visible on earth. To glorify God by making his invisible kingdom in heaven visible on earth. Hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Or in other words, the vision is to let heaven infiltrate earth for perfect justice Mercy, grace, goodness, heaven to infiltrate earth. For a second now, I want to ask you all to remove yourself from your seats, not physically, but figuratively from your seats, and place yourselves to the new heavens and the new earth when Jesus has already come back and he's already redeemed all of creation for himself. The days where our emotions and actions will no longer be controlled by our anxieties when injustice will no longer cause hunger and oppression, when the words we choose to say to each other will no longer be 
motivated or dictated by our insecurities, when the wicked will no longer prosper, when the number that we see in our bank accounts and on the weighing scale will no longer dictate our sense of worth, when we will no longer struggle with pride and comparison and self-righteousness, and when we finally get to see the scars on Jesus' risen body so that we may never, ever, ever question ourselves again of whether or not we are worth loving. Rest assured, for those who trust in Jesus that day will come. But until then, the Bible says that our God has a mission, and his mission has a church. Last week, we heard how Christians are God's agents to carry out this vision God has of making his invisible kingdom visible on earth. And today, in Romans chapter 15, verses 14 to 21, Paul's going to explain to us how exactly are we to do that. How can you and I, how can teachers, lawyers, counselors, students, parents... How can we all be a part of this and become God's agents that we can increasingly infiltrate earth with heaven? I have three points that I want us to see from our passage today. To do this, we must allow the gospel to consume our heart, to consume the heart of our neighbors, and consume the heart of our nation. That's our three points this morning. Consume our heart, let the gospel consume the heart of our neighbors, and consume the heart of our nation. Friends, there is nothing more important nothing more urgent, nothing more significant, nothing more fun, and nothing more right to do with our lives than to join into Jesus' vision of making his kingdom visible on earth. Let's start with our first point. Let the gospel consume your heart. You know, for some reason, I have this immediate eye roll reflex of hearing things that's been said over and over and over again at the pulpit. It becomes a cliche, but this one thing I believe can never be said enough. This, I'm confident, is the single most important thing to remember in your Christian walks, in your Christian growths. And it's this, that you never, ever, 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 ever graduate from the gospel. That does not happen. Some say the gospel is mainly for people who aren't Christians. Yet the book of Romans, which is all about the gospel, were addressed to Christians. Look at verse 14 with me in our text. I myself am satisfied about you who... My brothers, brothers, that's an address for people who are in the Christian faith, who are in the Christian family. Some say, okay, the gospel is probably for Christians, but more for immature Christians. When you grow in your Christian walks, when you, when you become more spiritual, you move on from the basic doctrines of the gospel and you move on to things like the end times or something like that, right? Look at verse 14 again one more time. He describes these Christians as that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, and able to instruct one another. These aren't just Christians. These are mature Christians. Maturity here defined as being full of goodness. That means their hearts and their characters have been shaped by the gospel. They're filled with all knowledge. This doesn't mean that they have all cognitive information about the Christian walk, but it means that they have enough to instruct others. This, these are mature Christians. So what do these mature Christians need? Look at verse 15 with me. But on some points, I've written to you very boldly by way of reminder. What do they need reminding of? Well, what is the book of Romans about? It's about the gospel. These mature Christians need to be reminded of the gospel. Paul realizes that in order for him to build agents who will infiltrate earth with heaven, he needs people who have their hearts consumed by the gospel. See, the more spiritually become, the more mature in your Christian's walk you become, 
you don't become closer and closer to God's status to where your gap between you, the gap between you and God becomes smaller and smaller, that the grace you need, the gospel you need, the cross you need becomes smaller. That's not Christian maturity. The more spiritual you become, the more mature you become, the more you see God's holiness and the more you see the depth of your sin and the cross and the gospel and mercy is forced to grow and become bigger. That is Christian maturity. What depths of pride when we think that we have out-Christianed the gospel? Something I'll be first to admit that I do every day. Friends, the gospel is not only the seed that begins our growth. It is the soil we grow under. It is the rain. It is the sun that sustains us. It is the minerals that nourish us. And this is the first thing Paul wants these Christians in Rome to be reminded of. You know, after John Wesley, he's a key figure in, in church history, he, he, he heard a reading of one of Martin Luther's sermon on the book of Romans, and this is the words he said, and I quote, I felt my heart strangely warmed. That's what happens when the gospel consumes your heart. When Jesus explains to his disciple on Luke, 20, on Luke chapter 24 that the whole Bible, the scripture, is actually about the gospel. Every single part of it is about the gospel. This is what the disciples said. Did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us. This is what happens when the gospel consumes our hearts. So, so let's see what Paul reminds these Christians in Rome of. Uh, let's do a brief overview of the book of Romans. In chapters one and two, Paul reminds them that God is all righteous and humans are sinful and that we have all become idolaters. And instead of worshiping the creator, we have worshiped creation. And instead of worshiping the gift giver, we have all worshiped the gift. This God then does not only have the right to be angry at us, have the right to be wrathful towards us, but he also is a just God. He can't let sin go unpunished, lest he be unjust. But this just God is also a loving God. He also can be unloving, so he's stuck, so to speak, in this dilemma of being just and loving at the same time. So what is God to do? Well, look at chapter three. He said, look at the cross, where God's justice and mercy meets where Jesus Christ took the penalty of our sins, that somebody is punished for sin, and we are loved by that act. Chapter 3, verse 16, that he might be just and justifier of the one who has faith in Christ. You can't appease God's anger by our own righteousness. We can't do it by our own obedience. Even Abraham and David can't do that, Paul says in Romans Romans chapter 4. What makes us think that we can? He then continues to expound in chapter 5 that of something that all of us, you and I, should remember more and more every day, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. If you are in Christ today, I wonder what might have happened this week, this month, maybe this year, that might have made you entertain the possibility that God hates you. He died for us while we were sinners. Now that we are his children, what could make him hate us? Yes, he might discipline you like a good father disciplines a child, but his fire is never meant to consume his children. It's never meant to hurt his children, only to refine. Then Paul brings us to Romans chapter eight. Friends, if there is ever a doctrine worth singing, it is this one. That if you are in Christ, nothing can take you away from him. 
You cannot lose your salvation. You cannot lose something you did not earn. The picture of salvation is not of a gift being given to you and now it's up to you to maintain it. It's up to you to live a good life, to go to church, to read the Bible, to share your faith. And if you don't do enough of that, you're gonna lose it. That's not the picture of the gospel. The picture is rather of the arms of the Father coming down and grabbing hold of you and never letting you go. He continues to talk about this in chapter nine and, and, and listen to this. He explains that if you've received Christ as your Lord and Savior, that means God, being the creator of time, has wanted for you to be his child before the foundations of the earth, Paul says in Romans 9, before time was even ever created. So if you think about it, there wasn't really a point in time when he decided to begin to love you because his love for you has existed for as long as he has, who is eternal and without beginning. And if he never began to love you because he's without beginning, he will never stop loving you because he's without end. So the proof that God will never stop loving his children is because he never began. Think about that. He's Abba to his children for those who have received Christ. He's your father bought by the precious blood of Christ. I know. I know that our hearts often aren't consumed by the gospel that we just heard throughout Romans. It isn't burning oftentimes. It isn't in flame. It isn't strangely warm. There are seasons in our lives where we have a hard time believing the gospel and therefore have a hard time feeling this fire in our hearts. But remember that if you are in Christ, even when your heart isn't burning for God, God's heart has been burning for you throughout eternity. Hold on to that. Believe in that. These are the things Paul first wanted to remind the Christians about. And this is why we encourage CBR, which is City Bible Reading, an effort that uh, we, we do to kind of encourage you guys, all of us to read the Bible daily. Or this is why we encourage you guys to go to community groups, not to promote legalism, but that so we can be reminded of the gospel, the red lining of, of the gospel throughout scripture from Genesis to Revelation. And after that, you would go to your community groups and you would talk of the gospel to God's people, and you would do so in a way that's not self-righteous and, and you do so in a vulnerable way so that people will stop looking at the masks we often put in our faces, but rather of the gospel within us. So earlier I said that for Paul to build agents of God's kingdom come, he first and foremost has to remind us of the gospel so that our hearts will be consumed by it. Well, there's a second thing that Paul wants to remind them about. Not only must we allow the gospel to consume our hearts, but as God's agents, as God's agents of making his invisible kingdom come, we must also let the hearts of our neighbors be consumed by the gospel, which is our second point. Look down on verse 15 and 16 with me. But on some points, I've written to you very boldly by way of reminder, because of the grace given me by God to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles in the priestly service of the gospel of God, so that the offering of the Gentiles may be acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. Not only did Paul remind them of the gospel that their hearts will, is, is to be consumed by it, but he also reminds them of the gospel so that the Gentile, the, the, he's reminding them of his role to the Gentiles, the gospel, I'm reminding you of this so that I can reach the Gentiles. Who are the Gentiles? These are people who aren't of Jewish descent and probably people who have never heard the gospel before. Look one more time at, at verse 16 to be a minister of Christ to the Gentiles in the priestly service of the gospel of God. What has God called Paul to do? To be a priest 
a minister to preach the gospel. Well, that's weird, isn't it? Aren't priests people in the Old Testament who would burn sacrifices, who would burn um, offerings to God with fire so that the animal sacrifices can be consumed and can be a fragrant aroma pleasing to God? And isn't that type of priesthood no longer needed now because Jesus Christ, who is the sacrificial lamb, as John once said, he was the lamb of God. Isn't he the fulfillment of that? Hasn't he completed the sacrifices so there's nothing left to point to because he's done it all? Yes, that's true. The book of Hebrews and New Testament all throughout is clear. We don't need to do any more of this because Jesus has completed the ultimate sacrifice. So then how is Paul a priest? What is he burning? What is he consuming, so to speak, as an offering to God? One more time, verse 16. So that the offering of the Gentiles may be acceptable. He's not offering God burnt offerings, but he's offering to God the Gentiles. How does Paul offer up the Gentiles? By preaching the gospel to them so that they may receive the gospel and that their lives might be lived in gospel obedience to God. And friends, this call isn't only for Paul, but it's for you and me here today as well. Listen to 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession that you may proclaim his excellencies. Not to be mistaken, we're not priests that have the authority to forgive people of their sins. That belongs to God and God alone. But we do have the authority to point people to the place where they can find forgiveness of their sins. That's how we are priests. And we're not offering ourselves and others to be consumed by literal fire, but we're offering our hearts. And we're offering others who don't know Christ to be consumed by gospel fire that their hearts may be burned, that their lives may be an offering as an aroma of fragrance pleasing to God. Look at or listen to Romans chapter 12, verses one to two. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God to present your bodies as a living sacrifice. We're sacrificing ourselves daily by what we choose to do, by what we choose to say, but what we choose not to do, by how we use our money, by how we use our time. We are living sacrifices, walking on the earth so that others may become living sacrifices as they are obedient to the gospel. Listen to 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14 to 16, as it talks about our priestly service, our sacrificial priestly service. But thanks be to God, who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession and through us spreads the fragrance. Fragrance and aroma is often the theme when you talk about burnt offerings, that through us, spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. We are an aroma. We are a fragrant. As we are walked around, burnt by gospel fire, we infect others around us. If you're a Christian today, if you have received Jesus as your Lord and Savior, no matter how long you've been walking in the faith, no matter what you know about the Bible, you all have the authority to be priests. Now, I know many of us in this room realize the depths of our sin, and we are hesitant to include ourselves in this holy priesthood. But I want us to look at what the priests in the Old Testament did before they had the authority to approach God. They had to be cleansed by water. They had to be clothed in spotless white garment. They had to be consecrated by the blood of a sacrificial animal. As Christians today, are we not cleansed by the death of Christ, clothed by the righteousness of Christ, and consecrated by the blood of Christ? 
The second a person receives Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, he and she has a priestly role and privilege of infecting the whole world with the gospel so that many more will become agents of God. And to do that, we must remember two things, that we are to consume our hearts first with the gospel. We are to consume others with the gospel as well. So how do we actually do this? How do we consume others and let the gospel ignite their hearts? Look at verse 18 and 19 with me of our text today. For I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me to bring the Gentiles to obedience by word and deed. By the, po- by the power of signs and wonders, by the power of the Spirit of God. We do it by word and deed. Power, signs, and wonders, that's just a fancy way of saying miracles. We can't control that. The, uh, God's Spirit, that, that's the Holy Spirit. We can't, we can't control that either. He has the ultimate say on who accepts the gospel or not. And it's good for us to be reminded of that. But God's sovereignty should never pacify our intensity. Paul says, word and deed, what you do and what you say still matters. What your neighbors hear you say, what they don't hear you say, what do they see you do, what they don't see you do, it plays a huge role in consuming their hearts for the gospel. Are we living in true integrity? Are we living in such a way that what we do actually reflects what we say we believe? Or are we diffusing the gospel heat in our neighbor's hearts because what we do is contrary to what we say? When what we do does not match with what we say, it's a sign that the gospel is, is, is not yet increasingly consuming our hearts or the gospel is having, um, or let me put it another way. Let me put it another way. When what we do matches what we say, that's a sign that the gospel is consuming our hearts. And that's a sign that our neighbors will see and have the gospel also consume their hearts. So with the risk of being a little corny, can I stick with this fire gospel analogy a little more? All right, so we have Jesus Christ, right? He's the ultimate fire. He's the ultimate sacrifice, the source of all the heat. And reminded of this daily, we are consumed by this gospel fire and our hearts are continually engulfed in this gospel fire that we will preach this, this gospel through word and deed to our neighbors who will then also see this gospel fire, who then will hopefully understand it and be consumed by it, that they will be walking around as a fragrant aroma pleasing to God as well. And this is how we build more agents for God's kingdom come that will continually have heaven invade earth. But God's vision does not stop with us or our neighbors. God says that he wants heaven to come down to all of earth. So, how do we do this? Thankfully, God through Paul tells us in our text today, not only how we are to consume our hearts with gospel fire, not only how we are to consume our neighbor's hearts with gospel fire, but also how we are to consume our nation's heart with gospel fire. Let's move on to our third point. Look down on the second half of verse 19 for me. This is what Paul says. So that from Jerusalem and all the way around to Illyricum, I have fulfilled the ministry of the gospel of Christ. Think about that statement for a second. He's saying that that whole region, he's completed everything that needs to be done for the gospel of Christ. The size of that region is huge. Imagine um, a place that has the width of Florida that stretches down from Miami all the way to Detroit. That's how big that region is. There is multiple countries. There are multiple cultures. There are multiple cities in that region. And Paul had the audacity to say he's completed everything in that region. Look at verse 23. He even says 
or you don't have verse 23, but trust me, this is what verse 23 says. He says, I no longer have any room for work in these regions. Paul, are you telling me that there's not one more person that still needs the gospel? There's not one young believer that still needs to be discipled. There's not one marriage left that needs counseling. There's no more hunger. There's no more oppression. There's no more injustices in that whole region. No, of course that's not what he's saying. So to figure out what Paul actually meant and God's clue to you and I today of how the nation's heart is to be consumed by the gospel, we must look at the cities in this region. So let's do a little exercise, all right? I'm going to name some of the cities that are in this region, and you tell me whether or not these cities sound familiar to your ears. Thessalonica, Ephesus, Philippi, Corinth. They sound familiar? They're the books of the New Testament, aren't they? They're letters that Paul have written to churches that are in this city in the New Testament. First and second Thessalonians is to the church in Corinth. I'm sorry, in Thessalonica. Ephesians is a letter that Paul wrote to the church in Ephesus. Philippians is a letter that Paul wrote to the church in Philippi. First and second Corinthians is letters that Paul wrote to the church in Corinth. So what does this tell us? This tells us that there are churches there that Paul has succeeded to plant gospel-centered, self-sustaining churches in the various cities within this region. And when he's done that, he says, I fulfilled the ministry of Christ. Acts 17 records Paul's ministry in this region. When Paul came to Thessalonica, one of the cities that we mentioned earlier, the men in that city said this about their coming to that city. These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. The churches that Paul planted in the cities in this region have continued God's mission of redeeming those cities so that it may look more like heaven, so much so that the world felt like it was turning upside down. He has laid on foundations, verse 20 says in our text, in the form of gospel-centered churches in these cities so that God's heavenly kingdom through them can infiltrate and ignite the whole region as the gospel of God so that the whole region maybe an aroma of fragrance pleasing to God, burned, ignited, kindled by gospel fire. That is the purpose of the church. And now he says, my work here is done. There's nothing left to do. Because if these planted churches continue what they're supposed to do, they become kingdom outposts in this region. And the Christians who gather there are ignited as they pray through the gospel, as they sing of the gospel, as they hear about the gospel. And these gathered people will then scatter, ignited, living their lives, go to work, relate to their families, go to their neighborhoods, ignited for the gospel, living their lives in such a way that, heaven's, that heaven will come to earth. And hopefully through this, more churches will be planted. And this is how you consume your nation with the gospel. A friend of mine one day walked into a KFC and he asked what anybody would ask at KFC for fried chicken. The person at the counter then proceeded to say something no one should ever hear at a KFC. He said, we are out of chicken. True story. My friend then, a little bit rude because he was hangry, (laughs) continued to ask a question back to him and it was a little jabby, but it was a good question. He asked, well then, what is the purpose of your existence? (laughs) That's a fair question to ask. That's what you do at KFC. You get fried chicken. Yes, they have coleslaw. Yes, they have green beans. Yes, they have mashed potatoes and biscuits. And they're great. 
but they're all to revolve around the fried chicken. If the gospel and if God's mission isn't the driving force behind the church, if it isn't the goal of the church, if it isn't what the church is revolving around and consumed by, why do we exist? Why aren't we in heaven? Why are we on earth? Friends, God through Paul says that this is his plan to have heaven infiltrate earth, the church, and there's no plan B. The intensity of the gospel in your own hearts is of utmost importance because it's directly related to how your neighbors will be consumed by the gospel and how this city will be consumed by the gospel and hopefully with other gospel-centered churches in this country, our nation. Your nation, my nation too, but Indonesia is my nation. Um, We are a church planted in a city, are we not? We're a church planted in a region. It is not hyperbolic to say, it is not an exaggeration or over-dramatizing to say that the intensity of the gospel heat in our hearts has a direct relation to how it will consume the city and our nation. After planting these churches, Paul says that there's no more work for me to do here, and I'm gonna go now, we see in verse 24, he's going to Spain. To do what? To preach the gospel. A man consumed by the gospel is living his life sacrificially. He goes to places where Jesus is not named so that others by his words and by his deeds will see this gospel preached to them and, and hear this gospel preached to them and that their hearts will be consumed by gospel fire and hopefully churches will be planted in Spain as well. Paul's hope that the whole region will be consumed by gospel fire offered to Jesus as a fragrance and aroma pleasing to him. Let's end here. This whole thing was not Paul's idea. Look down at verse 21 with me. As it is written, where was it written? In Isaiah chapter 52, verse 15. As it is written, that's in the Old Testament, those who have never been told of him will see, and those who have never heard will understand. God's heart for the nations has existed long before Paul. Thus so his plan for the church. So earlier, I asked you to take yourselves away from your seats to the new heavens and new earth. Now I want to ask us to all come back to the here and now, and it all begins with the gospel consuming our hearts here, today, this morning, every day. So as we're reminded of the gospel in our next closing songs, let it consume your heart a little more than it did before. That as we behold the cross where the king of glory died, Like the Old Testament priest, we might be cleansed by the death of Christ. You may be reminded that we're clothed by his righteousness, that we're consecrated by the blood of Christ, that it's a free gift to us, but it cost him everything. And if we believe this, we know that in God's eyes, all the stain, all the guilt, all the failures, all the shame in our lives that has been caused by us on what we do to others and what others have been done to us, God says, you carry it no more and it's put on Christ. Let it kindle your heart just a little bit more than it did before. Hold on to it. And now as priests go, through word and deed, preach the gospel to your neighbors and through our imperfect lives and through our imperfect church. God will hopefully ignite this whole neighborhood, this city, this nation to the ends of the earth with the gospel. Pray with me. Father, I will be the first to admit that I do not believe the gospel a lot of times and I have struggled to feel the warmth and feel the gospel consume my heart. But Lord, remind me daily that when I don't believe, 
when I have a hard time believing my identity in Christ, that your heart has burned for me before the foundations of the earth and will continue to burn for me, and that you want me so bad, you did not leave the possibility of spending time with me and for those who have received Christ up to chance. You did that by sacrificing your son on the cross, by taking our punishments upon yourself. Let us be reminded of that. Let that information pass our minds and come to our hearts. That the kingdom of God may first infiltrate our hearts and therefore the hearts of our neighbors and eventually this whole region. Thank you for who you are. Thank you for the gospel. Remind us as we sing about it in these next few songs.